0: A big welcome to episode 52 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Jonathan Overend. Jonathan has worked for the BBC Radio for the last 25 years, up until recently, where he's now a freelance journalist, where you'll be hearing him on your screens for the French Open on ITV. I don't have a whole lot to say about Jonathan. other than he's fantastic. He really is. It's, uh, I genuinely enjoyed the chat as much as any over the last few months. I found myself with goosebumps on many occasions. Uh, the voice of his is tennis for me. It's it's what I remember <laughs> over the years, What listening to tennis in the car. The Andy Murray 2013 final, I did listen to the first two sets on the radio as I was frantically trying to get to my parents' house where I watched the final set and I can hear his voice so well now. My only regret of that final is that I didn't listen to him for the final set whilst watching on TV as well because the way that he brings tennis to life, the way that he brings sport to life is is second to none in my opinion and you might hear some of my nerves in the podcast I genuinely was a little bit nervous speaking to Jonathan you know he's a, he's a he's a superstar at what he does but he's a down to earth humble guy and I'm I'm really pleased to have him on the show and I'm sure you guys are going to absolutely love it as well so without further ado I'm going to pass you over to Jonathan Overend So, Jonathan Overend, a, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Dan. It's a great, uh, great pleasure. Well done on the series so far.
0: No, thanks, Jonathan. I've I must admit, I've been. I've been very excited. and I think, possibly more nervous, having you on the show than anybody else to date. Oh, um, well, be, that's
1: that's clearly rubbish.
0: <laughs> it's, no, uh, the, the, <laughs> for, for me, you're the you're the voice of radio. You're someone who I've listened to for many many years you know and I think for those listening who don't know Jonathan I'm sure the majority of you do you know Jonathan's worked on radio over 25 years and and the famous 2013 Wimbledon final which I'm sure we'll touch on later in the podcast for those tennis listeners is is one of his big moments yeah Um, I
1: can't can't really remember that (laughs) What was that
0: it's yeah i' i I can't wait to get into that a little bit and there's there's many things I want to discuss Jonathan yeah but I, I guess to start with what we've been doing on the pod is is looking at there's there's many lenses of, of tennis and and there's also I'm a big believer that tennis is a vehicle into many different parts of of the game, mm. so I'm really interested know tennis for you did you play when you were younger, when did the tennis thing start for you?
1: I played a really tricky opponent throughout my school days, Dan, and that opponent was the wall uh, nice. in, in my back yeah. garden, and uh, I just couldn't find a way past him, <laughs> but that, that was basically it. Uh, I, okay. No, I didn't, I didn't really play to any standard at all. I was one of those classic kids of the 80s who just played whatever was on the TV at the yeah, time. Yeah, That's why I've always been such a massive advocate of sport on terrestrial TV. Absolutely. Just because I I know what it did for me at the time. If the darts was on, I'd have my darts board up. If I had the yep. snooker on, I'd have my snooker table up. And, of course, if Wimbledon was on, I'd yep. have, like, the, the garden furniture all on its side in the garden in front of this wall. Not that it was yeah. really required, but, you know... And, and I'd pretend to be Stefan Edberg, or, and I'd have, a, like, a mini championship on the go. And the same would happen... I mean, this, makes me, this paints a really sad picture you won't be surprised to learn I'm an only child. <laughs> the same with the cricket. When, you know, when the cricket was on and Richie Benno, and loved that and the, the one day matches, I'd, I'd play cricket against the same wall. I mean, this wall was a versatile sportsman. Uh, could turn his hand to absolutely anything. Um, so, so that was me really in my childhood. And of course, the more I played, the more I kind of would talk to myself in my head about what I was doing there on my own in my sad little teenage life in the garden. And I suppose yeah. that's where the sort of commentary side of it, then yeah. came out
0: and as you were talking there jonathan i genuinely got some goosebumps because as you were talking you were painting that picture and, and that was my next question that that came to my head is this also where the commentary started
1: yeah it i remember really getting into the radio um in my bedroom at that sort of time um listening to sort of England internationals on, on medium wave it would have been the old Radio 2 in those days the Radio yeah. 2's medium wave frequencies that then subsequently turned into Radio 5 and then and then yep. 5 Live and you'd have the great commentary duo in the 80s of, of Peter Jones and, and Brian Butler two yep. amazing voices such evocative language as well but yep. it, it was their it was their tone as well and they would invariably come across from down some crackly line from Romania or somewhere like that yep. And that, for me, um, you know just started painting pictures in my head and conjuring these these images of these sporting contests and at the time as well I'd get really excited listening to Wimbledon on yeah. the radio and Peter Jones was was the host of that on BBC Radio as well as being the number one football commentator he was the host of the radio coverage and, and Max Robertson would be the lead commentator amazing yeah. inspiration there as the ball by ball commentator but then these other voices would, would pop up on the outside courts as well you'd have Tony Adamson appearing on on yeah. court two and Norman Cudder i mean who was norman cutterford but he was just this this sound of the summer and he was a bit of a legend in the radio sports room as i i subsequently uh, learned and then you'd go through david mercer and and joyce hume and you'd move to the uh, richard evans era and the uh, miles harrison marcus buckland ian carter and all these amazing voices who took tennis coverage on the radio to a new level and i was i was listening to all this absolutely transfixed i remember actually going to Wimbledon. as a a spectator one day queuing up in the queue crack of dawn as you do uh, going in watching the tennis around the outside courts and actually being really anorak and really wanting to see the radio voices in their little boxes in the corner of the court so i could sort of visualize so i could actually see the picture that had been in my head for the years previous. And uh, I think I think I waved at Tony Adamson once, and that was like a, a, a highlight of this sort of 16-year-old little boy. And little did I know that a few years later, I'd be sitting in those, those very chairs.
0: Amazing, and it, and it is so true. And if I, if I think back to my younger days of camping with the family, and I must admit cricket, I think, is a sport that's done it incredibly well over the years. I can really have strong memories of sitting in the rain, the car even trying to get into the car to get away from the rain and listening to those voices and and they are a big part of my childhood growing up mm. I think the, the impact of radio commentary I think is so much more than television commentary
1: oh yeah t- totally i mean it's it's a hundred years old, coming yeah. up for a hundred years old you know radio sports coverage on the radio so I mean what a, what a centenary that's going to be, and I yeah. think it, it's vital that those of us in the industry cling on to that history Absolutely. Dan look i mean. I'm not one to to stop the, the movement of time and yep. it's, it's clear the way we're going and, and the, the, the quest for younger audiences is not just a BBC thing. You know, the media as a whole needs the younger audience because the logic being, if no one's listening to the radio now, yep. why would they listen in the future? Yep. Yes, there will be a certain amount of natural migration, but you, you need to get the younger listeners involved now. However... I think it's, it's a really important part of our culture and as our nation's history and our radio sports coverage is absolutely revered the world over. And that's one thing actually that I found out in my time on the tennis tour, when you go around the world that the kudos... Of BBC yeah. Radio. It, it really was like having a special sort of accreditation round your yeah, neck yeah. because people from other countries would look to you and they, because our coverage would be broadcast on the World Service you see and we think BBC yeah. Radio has a, a decent audience in the UK but yeah. it's nothing compared to the World Service. Mm-hmm. So if your commentary is also being simulcast on the World Service, suddenly you're going to millions and millions and millions of homes around Africa, around other continents as well. And the, the correspondence that my colleagues on the World Service get, you know, from mm-hmm. far-flung outposts is, is extraordinary. And it yeah. really makes you stop and think, yes, we yeah. can chase numbers and stats and data and all that sort of thing. It's a really important part of our business. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not. But that connection, that personal connection that the radio broadcaster has with that one listener. Because that's something we were always taught, Dan, growing up. Don't think of the fact you're talking to hundreds, thousands, millions of people. You're talking to one person. Just picture that one person. Who is it that you are talking to at that moment in time? And if that one person is listening and gets something from what you're doing, then that's, that's job done in our business.
0: Amazing. Well, I, if I share a little story, Jonathan, I, I've lived in Spain for 10 and a half years now, mm-hmm. and maybe my wife's not going to be happy when she hears this. But on a Saturday afternoon between four o'clock and six o'clock here in Spain, we pick up BBC Radio 5
1: yeah,
0: and it, it comes in and it's from the it's from the services radio from Gibraltar. And okay. I happen to put my hand up quite frequently on a Saturday afternoon to go and do the shopping. Or to go and do something to help out that my wife thinks that I'm helping, oh. but what, but one of my big motivations is that feeling. I get in the car, 99.2. I put it on. It's it's a bit crackly, so I've got to find the right place on the on the road, and I and I now know the roads where it works, and and I have a feeling of so I I can completely relate to it. It's something that that connects us all, and and long may it continue. Yes,
1: because you get the second half, that I guess of the uh, of the Saturday afternoon uh, three o'clock match. Do you is that is that how yeah, it works? You, and you then actually, sports report.
0: Yeah, and then it actually goes to talk sport for the evening match, actually as well. Okay, so it kind yeah. of it, it's kind of jumping. I think it's the forces radio. Mm. So it kind of it's jumping in between a few, but it's it's a it's a really nice comforting feeling actually to have it
1: yes because because world service still just broadcast the second half of the saturday three o'clock match and that's something that they used to do on radio two actually they only would do full commentary on the second half It's second right, half okay. commentary. And they would yeah, they yeah. would make this big thing at one o'clock of, yeah. of announcing which match was going to be the second half commentary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it sounds really weird, doesn't it? But yeah, Peter yeah. Jones would pop up at one o'clock and it would be sort of one of the early media reveals, if you like, what was yeah, going yeah. to be the match. And that was, again, one of these moments of real excitement as a listener. And yeah. It's something that, again, as we sit in front of our computers and tap into the, the data and the analytics and all that sort of thing, again, just think about that connection and that excitement of what we can yeah. do on the radio and that that announcement of the second half commentary match really yeah. got me and it pulled me yeah. in and, and then would make me listen for the rest of the afternoon so it's so good to hear that you're popping out for the shopping but you're you're actually <laughs> secretly in the car just sitting there listening to the football on the radio that's just good news Dan.
0: I'll cut that bit out for the wife okay uh, but uh, so, so on that Jonathan a couple a couple of things uh, uh, jump into my mind one I guess how did you then turn that turn that passion into reality that, that you've made a career of how did that start
1: it it was the classic foot through the door situation yep. if I'm honest I was I was doing yep. my a levels and um I knew by then that I really wanted to get into radio and I was a massive sports fan. So I put the two together and thought, right, I really want to do sport on the radio. And I was uh, 16, 17 and I wrote to my local radio station, which was BBC Essex in in Chelmsford. And uh, the guy yeah. who actually replied to my letter, and I've still got it on sort of old, you know, type written yeah. uh, print, um, I know him really well, a guy called Edward Marriage, who was the news editor at the time, and he went on to be Five Live's rugby producer for many years, I producing Ian Robertson. And uh, you know, every time I see him now, I tease him about this, you know, saying, "Oh, it's a good job you replied to me, Ed," and it, and it was because he did. He yeah, sent a really lovely reply, sort of saying, "Go to this college or get this qualification." You know, you need that really for a career in this business, and it was sort of like this, sort of uh, quite quite downbeat I suppose reply saying do this and do that and get back to me when you've done that but then right at the end of the letter was one single line where he said in the meantime I've passed your letter on to our sports editor and asked him to consider you for his Saturday afternoon sports team and there still to this day hasn't been a more exciting sentence ever sent to me in a letter or an email and the following august i was in i was in through the front door i was earning 10 pounds for a saturday shift which basically was making the tea or compiling the hockey results or ringing round the rugby clubs to find out you know if anyone had scored five tries or anything like that Um, but it was such a great grounding because you were part of this fast moving sports operation on a saturday afternoon which was my dream really and oh, yeah. from there it was really just working your way up through that team through the ladder and um at the age of 21 uh, which was very young in those days i i got my first full-time job and it was only because of the hours i'd put in as effectively as a volunteer that i was oh, yes. able to get that job i think um in yeah. 1994.
0: and it, it's such a common trend like I, like I said off air i think this is number 53 or 54 of the podcast that we're doing and it's been such a common trend in successful people we've spoken to, they've volunteered time first, you know, they've made it, they've made it happen, you know, rather than sitting around. And I think it's a great message for so many youngsters that are listening, you know, you follow your passion, you follow your dreams, you put yourself out there and doors can open.
1: Yeah. And write a nice letter, you know, it (laughs) it still counts. I know we don't do letters anymore in life, do we? But I tell you what, when you get one, it really counts for something. Doesn't it? And it if does, you f- it, just it find out the right person to write to, write a yeah. nice letter. And I tell you, yeah. it, it will make a difference. Follow your passion, work hard, just learn, learn as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, look, in, in your business, that's, that's what you have to do as a as a kid, Absolutely. as a junior player, don't you? You just have to soak it all up. Learn yeah. as much from as many people as you possibly can, and fingers crossed everything will, will fall into place. But when uh, I did start in 1994 uh, on the staff, they, they made up these awful like publicity photographs, you know, and you don't want to see the photo. But interestingly, on the back was like a little couple of line biography and it said, oh, he's just joined straight from uh, doing a a degree and all this sort of stuff. And he he lives in Burnham-on-Crouch in Essex because it was my local radio station. Um, But then there was one line at the end saying, his ambitions, and this is interesting, this is where I think this will lead on to the rest of our conversation. His ambitions are to write a number one record and commentate on a wimbledon tennis final and that was me at 21 because i was i still am a really keen musician and i suppose that is sort of still an ambition of mine but interesting that the other half of my ambition uh has been fulfilled and that's what i wanted to do and so lucky to have done it
0: so when does the writing start for the next ambition to be ticked off
1: I don't know, what would that be? I don't know. I'm not sure. The, the, <laughs> Counting down now, <laughs> I'm sort of over the over the over the over the peak of the mountain. So uh, I don't know. Do your ambitions change at that point?
0: Possibly. And and tennis, so obviously a, a tennis podcast and you know, tennis, you've you've given us all lots of Lots of pleasure, lots of comfort, lots of lots of great moments over the years. How did you then get into into the tennis side of, of broadcasting?
1: So it was something that I really wanted to do, uh, as I say, because that was my ambition. It, it's there in evidence in 1994 to to work yeah. on the Wimbledon team, and I think it was '99 the first time um, that I was invited onto the team. Might have been '98, '98, '99, that sort of time. But it was that. That almost closed shop, uh, John Inverdell was presenting, Ian Carter was the, the correspondent, then you had Tony Adamson, uh, you had a young Claire Balding, was part of the team yeah. in those days, uh, Chris Bowers, Richard Evans, you know, very familiar uh, tennis voices and, and writers. And, and I think maybe Nick Mullins was on the team, who does the yeah. rugby for ITV and, uh, and, and the French Open as well. But that was pretty much it. And then there was little me, young me, sort of joining this this group, and I, I just couldn't couldn't believe it. And one thing I remember actually from two thousand was John Imberdale was um, so this would have been my sort of second year on the team. John Imberdale was also doing the TV highlights at that point. I think it might have even been his first year doing the TV highlights. Yeah. And Sampras was about to to win in the gloom. That's
0: and right. What would, yeah.
1: what would that have been in two thousand? Would he have equaled Emerson's?
0: yeah I think Sorry, so, in though.
1: 2000 not 2002 when he when he, he he won his final one at the us open but 2000 you know it, it was equaling the record i'm pretty sure um yeah. and John but suddenly and i was just sitting in the back of the botch because I, I i wanted to see this historic moment and john Imbidal suddenly had someone come into his ears saying john you're needed on the tv set now to get ready for the highlights program because the highlights program is going on in half an hour and Stamperas literally was serving for the championship, and John said, "I've got to go," and I said, "You can't go. There's no way. There's no way you can yeah. go now." So he's about to put down his radio microphone to go to TV, have makeup done, and all that sort of thing, and then go live on BBC Two. And he said, "You're gonna, you're gonna have to take over." I said, no, "No, no way. There's absolutely no way this happens." And in the end, there's me, sort of twenty-something new boy on the team. Persuading the legend John Inverdale to to stay until Sampras uh, has his historic moment, which in the end he did, because I told him, but, uh, you've got to you've got to tell TV, you you'll be there in ten minutes. 10 minutes yeah. is all it's going to take. It's funny that because, you know, there, there was me sort of fresh on the team, almost yeah. Yeah. taking on that, that moment of history. Um, but uh, yeah, the, then two years after that, what happened, 2002, I, just, I was about to go to the, the Football World Cup in Japan and Korea and did end up going to the, the Football World Cup. But before then, Tony Adamson um, had announced, he was then the golf correspondent, he was just about to announce that he was going to retire. Now, a legend, Addo, of of both tennis and golf, of course. um, But his retirement meant that they needed a new golf correspondent. And the guy who was doing tennis, uh, Ian Carter at the time, who is still the BBC's golf correspondent, I think had made it known that if there was ever the chance to do golf, he would love to one day do golf. And I think he was five years, something like that, into into his time as tennis correspondent. So the boss basically gave him first refusal. He said, Ian, now's the time. Tony's retiring. Ian, would you like to be golf correspondent? And, of course, Ian says, no disrespect to tennis, but it's what I've always wanted to do. I've done five years on tennis. Absolutely, please, can I be golf correspondent? So all of a sudden, there's this this vacancy at BBC Radio for the next tennis correspondent. And I'm working in football full-time at that moment in time. I'm about to go to the World Cup. And the boss rings me up totally out of the blue. Um, there was no sort of interview or anything like that, no job application, because that's kind of the way it worked at the time. You had your team of broadcasters and you just sort of shuffled them around um, yeah. into all the various jobs and disciplines. And he said, would you, would you like to be tennis correspondent? And I, I, c- I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought, I'm about yeah. to go to the Football World Cup and you're asking me if I want to do the tennis and i said i'm going to have to get back to you gordon a great guy called gordon turnbull was the editor at the time and i said i'm going to have to phone you back and i put the phone down and i thought mm, wimbledon melbourne new york like every yeah. year i'm i'm a single single lad at the time then <laughs> new york every year melbourne every year paris that's before you even start to getting to rome shanghai i mean even hamburg's pretty nice place and i'm straight back on the phone yeah yes please i'll I'll have a bit of that thank you very much but of course you know more than that more than the travel and more than the amazing places it it had been my dream as i said back in 1994 to one day commentate on a wimbledon tennis final and here we were eight years later being presented with effectively that that opportunity so straight away it was yep there was that slight hesitation but then there was a totally absolutely get me on board and from january 2003 that was my job
0: fantastic and, and at that time what was what was your tennis knowledge like was it was it a sport that you you knew all of the players you knew the insides and out of, of how it worked or or did you have to upskill your knowledge in that area
1: no, I was I was very much uh, I was a fan. I was I was clearly yep. working in the sport, albeit only at only at Wimbledon. Um, they'd sent yep. me actually to the Davis Cup final of 2002 to kind of prepare myself for, for taking on. I don't know if you remember much about that final, but it was one of the most amazing Davis Cup finals. It was at Paris-Bercy. It was right. France against Russia, and France, you know, were in charge for the whole weekend. They were they were absolutely cruising. Uh, but then finally it it, it tipped. It was Paul Henri Mathieu playing uh Mikhail Yuushni in the in the final right, rubber okay. and Mathieu was was two sets up and my colleagues were all you know they were all on the Eurostar website sort of bringing their trains forward because this was going to be over mid-afternoon so everyone was like booking on yeah we can get out tonight this is uh some the way the way the British press sometimes worked when we were over in Paris uh when's the next train uh so there's there's Mathieu two sets to love up but he he was an interesting player, wasn't he? Because he was, he, was, uh, he had a great game. He had a great forehand in particular. Lovely movement around the court. I always enjoyed watching him. But if there was a problem with him, he could he had a problem with the mental side of the game, didn't he? And he, he struggled to close things out. And none yeah. more so than in that yeah. Davis Cup final. Because suddenly Eugenie was back in it. He won the third set. He won the fourth set. It was incredible tennis from the Russian and he he won it in five sets and Russia won the Davis Cup and that was my sort of warm up event if you like before yeah. taking on the correspondent job two months two months later so that that really helped get me into the the tennis uh, scene if you like get get know a lot of the people who yeah. were working for the ITF and the and the tours and the French Federation who were hosting us that weekend so yeah I was really into tennis uh, but I do remember that weekend as being being yeah. very important to sort of get me up to speed yeah. uh, ahead of traveling to Melbourne um, in January
0: and when you're a part of something like that a, a match like that the the crowd are involved the emotions are high do you ever get swept away when you're in the commentary box with that? And you know, how do you keep yourself in that moment?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's hard because obviously we're sport fans at the end of the day. Aren't yeah. we? If you're, if you're sitting in the coach's box, it's the same. If you're sitting in the commentary yeah. box, it's the same. And I would imagine if you're sitting in the, in the presidential box, it's the same as well, because we're all yeah. sport fans yeah. and you're watching the most incredible sports sometimes. And as a commentator it's hard particularly if you're doing like an Andy Murray match or a Tim Henman match back in the day because you're their broadcaster you're working for their broadcasting service effectively and you you desperately want them to win and you want to follow the story through to its natural conclusion which you very much hope is going to be winning the final or or winning the tournament but you have to to keep the, the expectation levels down you have to focus on doing your job Primarily, which is to describe the action and to report it in a with a journalistic sense. Um, But yeah, you're right. It is it is hard not to get swept away sometimes because the sport is so great.
0: No, no absolutely. And and Jonathan, I, I have to ask you, and back in two thousand and twelve, and still it's it's one of my career highlights, having having the opportunity to commentate with yourself. You know, I'll never never yeah. forget walk walking off that court. Raphael Nadal had hit with my player Josh Ward Hibbert. And as we're making our way through the crowd, I could see the headphones and, and you called us over to come into the studio. And you know, I, I was fortunate to do that at the French Open and, and also the US Open that year and what hit me a bit like watching Roger Federer, you know, the, the skill, when you see that in person, the, the skill level is just so, it's like poetry in motion. But what, what hit me sitting next to you in the commentators box, when you listen on the radio, it just sounds so easy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but, but, but when, but when you sat there and the way that you are describing and I'm sat there with you and I'm like, Oh my goodness, he's literally making this come alive. You know, that as a skill is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I don't think people realize how difficult that skill is.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was great. It was great to have you with us. I do remember that yeah, because we've over the years used a pool of different players, ex-players, yeah. coaches, journalists to join us because it's very different when you go abroad because it's a very small team. People think you take, yeah. you know, masses of production staff and masses of yeah. commentators, but no, when we go to the French Open or the, the US Open, it would be two commentators and a producer yeah. and that, yeah. that would be it. That would be our radio team. So to get that sort of expert voice alongside often, you know, you'd be you'd be begging and borrowing. Uh, As you know, that that particular shift didn't make you particularly rich, but it was uh, it was a great experience for you and great for us to have you join us as well. But in terms of what we do, you know, it's nice of you to say, because it is so difficult, so difficult. And it's obviously not something we can talk about about when we're on but the job is to describe the play tell the sto- tell the score convey the atmosphere but it's so much more than that you know you've got people in your ears telling you the latest football scores or hand back to the studio for a news flash or can you mention that there's a collision on the a14 outside kettering um or yeah. can you hand to court susan Longlon for an update from russell fuller and all this is going on as you're yeah. focusing on your match. And you've got the, the live scores as well from the other courts. You want to report on the British junior who's got a great win or, or the upset that's going on on court number seven. You've got to be right across everything while still staying true to your commentary beliefs and your commentary techniques, which are so important, i.e. hearing the umpire hearing the sound of the ball against the strings, it's such an evocative sound, and the sound quality so, so often is so good that you don't want to miss that. Painting the picture, what can you see? What what are the weather conditions like? Has the wind changed in direction? It's not something you would you would know if you weren't there. What about the spectators? How are they feeling? Are they are they interested in this? Are they are they edging towards the edge of their seats, or are they kind of, uh, or is the is it, is the stand half empty? All that sort of stuff, and that's before we even start talking about the forehands and backhands. Yeah. So you're right. There's an awful lot going on. It's a huge skill. It's an art form. I really believe it's an art. Platform. And I think a lot of uh, managers maybe think that people can just be plonked in front of a microphone and can just do it just like that. And, and you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to help, uh, you know, up and coming broadcasters in the future to really instill some of the lessons that I was taught from some of the yeah. all time greats of the microphone, which hopefully helped me throughout my career, because very soon some of those all-time greats i'm talking you know the era of the 70s and the 80s when those guys have gone um you know what's left it what's left are the people who were fortunate enough to have some sort of contact with them and learn from them so i think it's really important that we pass on those skills through the generations to help the guys who are, are going to be doing that job in the future
0: and can you give us the number one lesson that you were taught
1: I'll give you two, if I may. One yeah. is always remember that there is a crowd as well as yourself. Yeah. So, yes, you're, you're talking 100 words to the dozen because you're on the radio, but remember there's a crowd as well, and the crowd can help tell the story, the ups and downs of the crowd, and never more so than in that Murray-Wimbledon final of 2013. On the times I've listened back to it, you could almost just let the crowd tell the story, you, because yeah. you could hear it in, in the mood. I, I think of the crowd as, uh, as surfing, Dan, you know, and, and it's quite a good yeah. way to think about it. The waves are the crowd, and you are yeah. the surfer on top yeah. of the waves. And when the crowd are up, you're up as well, and you're, you're riding that wave of emotion, but then everything dips down again, and maybe Murray yeah. is about to surf for the championship, and you've got to fall down with with them. And it's that sort of tone, that cadence, that, that method of delivery, which I think sometimes is overlooked in commentary these days. You know, everyone's quite quite monotone. But no, I mean ride ride that wave. That's a really good lesson. And then the other the other great lesson I, I picked up from the very first few times I did tennis commentary was let the rally start with the serve. Don't don't um don't get behind don't get behind so don't try to speak too much around the serve because everyone as long as the listener yeah. knows who's serving which invariably they would because you've told the, the score at the end of the previous game and they've heard the previous game and now it's Federer coming out to serve at 5-4, for example. So they, they instantly know that Federer is serving. So every time you don't have to say, here's Federer about to serve. So you can almost concentrate on the return as the first shot in the rally. Um yep. And that helps you get that one shot ahead. And I'm talking specifically here, obviously, about radio commentary, TV commentary. You'd be shutting up, hopefully, during the the rally. Uh, Not always the case. Um, So if the return is a backhand return off a kicker, uh, a high kick serve, backhand return, you're immediately on top of the rally with that return. Whereas if you imagine you hear the sound of the Federer serve, if you then said federer serves and it's a kicker to the backhand corner that return is going to be back and federer is probably going to have played his second shot by the time you've finished describing the serve so yes. that to me was a really good lesson get ahead of yourself yes. in there i'm not i'm not sure how many people this is actually helping um but it's, it was just an interesting insight into one no, of the lessons i was taught very early in my career yeah. It's
0: fascinating because I think tennis, it does happen so fast, faster than most sports, mm. you know? So the description, the description of a tennis point, you might have five, six, seven seconds. Yeah. The description of a football, of Barcelona playing the ball from a, from the back up until scoring a goal is, is one and a half, two minutes at times, yeah. you know? So, and you know,
1: that's what's really changed in tennis, Dan, in in, in tennis commentary, and, it, and it's all down to the strings at the end of the day because, yeah. um, the strings clearly allow the players to hit it that much harder um the the bigger sweet spot means that i mean you you know all this this is all basically why uh people stay back isn't it and and rallies therefore go on longer and uh the speed of the rally is so much faster if you imagine in the older days with the with the old strings and the wooden rackets there would be serve and volley. There would be yep. the time between the ball coming from one end of the court to the other court, yep. and the rally would be over just like that yeah, because yeah. either there would be a volley winner or there would be a return passing winner. Yeah, you know, that's simplifying a, a little bit, but you know where yep. I'm coming from. Now yep. you've got this rat-a-tat-tat, which is not at the net. It's ratat tat from the baseline. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. So that is where it has really changed, making it practically impossible to describe every shot of a rally. So as well as describing most of the shots of a rally, you just have to give that general picture of well, as well of who's in charge here. You know, who's bossing this rally? Who's looking for the opening which is potentially going to end this rally? And it's yeah. then just using your experience from all the rallies you have watched on the practice courts and on the match courts over the years to just sense the moment when one player is going to make that That key move, the move that is going to end the rally one way or another. And if you can spot when that's about to happen, it really helps you as a commentator Mm -hmm. because you can be on top of it at that moment. So here we go. Here comes Federer with the with the mid-court forehand approach. And you know that the rally is going to end soon. It might not end with that shot. But it might end sort of two or three shots later. Backhand from the Nadal. Forehand volley from Federer. In comes Nadal to make it. Little touch shot at the net from the Nadal. But there's Federer with the overhead to end that. So you know it's coming. Do you see what yeah. I mean? And if you're on top of it at that moment of approach, if you like, um, then that can really help you, I think, in, um, in the art of radio commentary.
0: There's the voice, there's the voice, Jonathan. The, we've, we've missed that, the description of a point. <laughs> what, what, uh, one bit of advice you gave me, and it was, it was in New York, and you told me, very similar to what you've just said there, the microphones that come into the studio, when somebody speaks or the crowd is loud, let that happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, or if I even spoke to you about this, and my memory is it was you, but it could have been Russell. And it was, the, it was the semi-final US Open 2012, Novak Djokovic against David Ferrer. David Ferrer was 5-2 up. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And yourself, and maybe we'll say it's Russell, so we're not saying that it's you that did it, but went to the toilet. Now, yeah. I, was, I was confident enough at that time to be able to do a change of ends and give a little bit of an analysis of the change of ends. So I'm giving my little bit of analysis. Djokovic was off on that day. Like he was all over the place. And all of a sudden the umpire starts speaking. So I've, I'm doing as I'm told, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to, to what you, you experts have told me. So I, I allow this to come through on the radio and they announce that players suspended because there's a thunderstorm in the area. Yes there isn't a cloud in the sky but there's so everyone needs to evacuate the stadium immediately so now i'm sat in the studio <laughs> top of arthur ashe stadium looking down where's Jonathan where's Russell which I can't remember which one it is and now I have I have time to fill which would have normally just been obviously talking about talking about the tennis and it was it was a fantastic experience for me I absolutely loved it while also being told to
1: evacuate
0: (laughs) yeah no completely and 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 I actually where was the producer where was Steve Jones at the
1: time that's (laughs) what I want to know
0: and I was actually flying that night back and and it ended up being completely chaotic. We're trying to get out of Flushing Meadows and running mm. across, trying to get taxis to the airport. Oh, it was and a
1: crazy weekend, wasn't it? I mean, I re- was- I remember sort of the, I mean, at Flushing Meadows, we, we're really high, aren't we? We're on top of the yeah. stadium in that sort of broadcast row of boxes, but it's right on top, exposed to the elements. And I, I just remember it swaying, starting to sway yeah. in the wind. And no yeah. wonder we were evacuated because... Yeah, there was absolutely. there was no way we we could have stayed on on site there, yeah. um but it's funny you you, you mentioned we were probably we we had to take a toilet break because of that was that was always one of the challenges there at Flushing Meadows. Yeah. There was one toilet serving yeah, that right. entire broadcast yeah. facility, yeah. and of yeah. course, if you are on the air and you need yeah. to go, you peg it down the corridor, and there's oh. this one toilet, and yeah often there would be like a line of people where and you go i'm on the air but of course everybody else is also yeah. on the air that's, that's like what are you meant to do um so yeah, that was often no a, often a bit of a challenge
0: yeah and can you well we're on that and, and i am conscious of time jonathan and but bloopers give me Give us a couple of your favourite blooper stories. There's, there must have been some of those over the years.
1: Yeah. Oh well. The, you know, the, 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 the balls are always in someone's hands. You know, the, the, that, that, that's always, you know, because obviously you're, you're looking around, you're trying to describe. Nadal's tugging at his shirt, and, and, the balls are in his hands, ready, ready to serve. There's that. I remember actually going to the um, Olympics of 2004. That incredible Olympic tennis tournament. Remember that, where, where Nicolas Massou yeah. won the the gold in the right. doubles and the the singles for Chile. Yeah. Uh, still to this day, Chile's only yeah. gold medals at the Olympic Games. Yeah. I don't know how he did yes. that. It was incredible. Um, but anyway, as well as covering the tennis, I was, and there were some brilliant matches. I remember as well in the women's championship that that year involving Anna en- and Clysters and, and Um But anyway, that that might, I digress. Um, I was there for the tennis, but I was also sent to the badminton, and Gail M's was was on her yeah. way to a silver medal in the badminton and next thing you know i'm over there because they're in the uh, in the semi final match and obviously you know guaranteed medal and all that it was a good story but next thing you know they're saying um it's full match commentary if you don't mind i'm going really on badminton i've never never done this before Okay, i've done tennis commentary because badminton is 300 mile an hour compared to tennis 200 yeah. mile an hour um and i did it and it it was alright and i went back to the broadcast centre and i thought i thought it was not too bad for something pretty sort of groundbreaking radio badminton commentary and they said yeah it was it was okay it was okay um just one problem though that that thing you were calling the shuttlecock i said oh yeah what was that then um they said well let's just say you weren't calling it the shuttle and of course i was calling it the other bit and it transpired i called it the other bit more than once, and uh, yeah, okay, that that wasn't great. Thankfully, I didn't have to do too much more of that. Um, but uh, yeah, putting uh, putting your, your your foot in it is uh, a, a frequent occurrence when you're on the radio, um, because obviously you're speaking so many more words than than you would be on the TV. Yeah,
0: yeah no, absolutely. And I was going to say best experience, but I'm not even going to give you a choice, Jonathan. Yeah. You're gonna. Tell us Wimbledon 2013. What's what does that mean to you?
1: Oof. I mean, I could I could actually tell you so many more matches as well, Dan. I mean, there are there are so many that that live yeah. in the memory of just great matches that that I've seen over over the years. Do you know? I, I remember I remember Federer at the U.S. Open of 2004. Do you remember yeah. when he took apart Hewitt in the final? Yes. Um, yeah barely lost a game Federer and I just yeah, yeah. remember thinking I, I don't think I'm ever going to see tennis yeah. played like that again just yeah. so explosive and you know against such a recent world number one yes. um, that that was amazing and of course the Federer and Nadal finals the trilogy from Wimbledon yeah. 2006 to 2008 hard to beat 2006 actually got a story from that because uh, my wife was in labor uh, with our first had... child And um, it was over in four sets, if you remember rightly, the first Federer-Nadal final. The first one was four sets to Federer, the second one was five sets to Federer, and then, of course, there was the famous Nadal win of 2008. And uh, she'd been on the phone, or her mum had, to to our producer, and and the deal was that if it had gone to five sets, I was going to have to go. I was going to have to peg it back to Newbury, Berkshire, to um, to to help out, <laughs> which of course I was more than happy to do. But thankfully, Federer got it done in four, and 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 there we go. Then then Zidane uh, headbutts some. Uh, got uh, yeah, the, the whole World Cup thing happened. France yeah, yeah. that that night, and uh, and uh, my daughter Amelia was born a few hours later. So it was all very all very dramatic. Uh, which again is off on a ridiculous tangent. Um, but I remember the five set final of two thousand and seven and then of course the, the, the incredible final of two thousand and eight, which which for me remains the best match I've ever seen. Um, the the longest Wimbledon final of course that ended in, in near darkness. And it was incredible. What, it was incredible, wasn't it? And if I, I just the, the thing I remember most clearly from that was Ian Ritchie, the, the chief executive of Wimbledon at the time, who went on to the RFU, great guy. He was lingering around the, we used to call it the corner of doom, you know, But by, by the uh, by, the player's entrance there. If the referee, let alone the chief executive, appears, you know you're in trouble because you know yeah. something's about to happen. Um, and of course, play was about to be suspended. And if it had gone, what would it have been? Five, um, it would have gone 7-all. Uh, 7-all, yeah. 7-all uh, or whatever it was, 8-all, uh, um, that would have been that. Because they didn't want to call it off for the night with one player one game ahead that's yeah, the, yeah. that's the sort of unwritten rule isn't it that you try and do that wherever yeah. possible um, so if it if that had been the score it would have been okay that's it it's literally back Monday potentially for two games and how yeah. mad would that have been but Nadal finally got it done and he got it done in that final set at 9 whatever it was (laughs) 9.20 odd in the evening and I remember going to the champions dinner which didn't start till almost midnight and it it just was the single most dramatic day uh, of my tennis watching career and I would would probably include 2013 in that just just in terms of the historic nature of the match itself, the quality of tennis so deep into that Nadal Federer final um, and the fact that it was almost pitch blackness when yeah, nadal yeah. lifted lifted the trophy so that that will live forever uh, in in my mind but but 2013 uh, no i mean come on what what, a, what an amazing day i remember yeah. waking up ridiculously early you know petrified like i was about to play the wimbledon right. final and walking through the gates at about 7am and you know what it's like down when you when you arrive at wimbledon super early it's just so evocative, yeah. so surreal, the, the situation, because the nets aren't up and there's so few people around. And, of course, when you do that, when you arrive so early on finals day... It, it means so much more because it takes so much longer for more people to arrive because there are just so, yeah. so so few people on the yeah. site and the build-up was interminable. We went on air at midday and of course the final didn't start till <laughs> two. So if you've arrived at 7am, that is a lot of time yeah. sort of stewing over what might happen. But I remember the first thing I was asked by John Inverdell when we went live at midday was, um, You know, if there were stars above, I think he said, if there were stars above, is it written in the stars? And I had to, it was like that moment with um, Kevin Keegan and and Brian Moore at Euro, whatever it was, when when David Batty um, missed a penalty for England. And and Brian Moore turned to Kevin Keegan and said, is he going to score? And I mean, what's Kevin Keegan meant to say? Oh, no, I I think he might graze the post here, Brian. (laughs) You have to say yes. And it was that situation for me. It was literally the first thing I'd said when we went on the air is basically, is Murray going to do it? So... Obviously, part of you thinks, oh, what a, what a first question. But the thing I remember is I had absolutely no doubt. I had no doubt I'd about okay. my reply to that question. I said, yes. Yes, I believe it is written in the stars. I believe this is, is Murray's moment. And there were, there were a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, 2012 had been an amazing year for Andy. Um, yep. He'd lost the Wimbledon final. Uh, and there were the tears into Sue Barker's microphone and for me that was a massive moment it was a massive moment of realisation, of acceptance of Murray I think just just turning a corner mentally in yeah, his, agree in his career yeah. um, and what happened of course after that is a couple of weeks later literally a couple of weeks later he's back on the same court playing the same opponent in the Olympic gold medal match and he thrashes him he dismantles him in straight sets in an unbelievable performance, having beaten Djokovic in the semi-final, and he wins the gold medal. Having having watched Super Saturday the night before and been inspired by Jess and Mo, and, and Greg, and again a big turning point I think in Andy Murray's life was his change in attitude towards the Olympics, because in yeah. Beijing he wasn't there. He really wasn't there. He didn't he didn't get it, and I think he would probably admit as much now. So. Losing that Wimbledon final, crying into Sue Barker's microphone, redemption against Federer weeks later, the getting of what the Olympic gold medal meant to so many people over so many decades. Those things put together set him up for his trip to New York. Uh, And, of course, he'd had this brilliant, hardcore summer and won in New York, famously against Djokovic in five sets to win his first Grand Slam. So all, all that together, they then played in, in Melbourne in, in January and, and Djokovic got the, got the better of him that day. But again, it was a brilliant effort from Murray. So it just all made me think, and the, and the French Open as well. You know, He had a great French Open. It just all made me think, yep, it's all coming together. The sun's shining. Yes, the stars are aligned. He's played brilliantly. He's got plenty left in the tank. I think this is it. And, and so it proved. And and did
0: you know that that was going to be your last match before the match?
1: I, I did. I, I knew, I'd known since March, um, okay. if you can believe that, that my last match as BBC tennis correspondent was going to be the men's singles final wow. at Wimbledon. Um, and I I put this on my Facebook page, on my personal Facebook page, yeah. that because obviously it was, it was a massive moment for me, um, you know, yeah. deciding that 10 years basically was was enough i i had such an amazing run of it uh, and had uh, these two young children at home who i was i was barely seeing that it, it, yeah. it just felt right um to let someone else have a go and i've i've always yeah. believed that and i'm really glad i did um yeah. but of course what it meant is that i knew from that moment that the Wimbledon final would be my last match but because i put it on my my personal facebook page one of my facebook friends is andy murray's manager Uh, Matt Gentry, who must have told Judy Murray, like within seconds of me posting this thing, because next thing you know, I'm getting messages on Twitter saying, what's what's this about you leaving as tennis correspondent? Because Judy Murray has just tweeted it. (laughs) So. the news of my imminent departure that was meant just for my personal friends and family was suddenly out there thanks to thanks to judy murray so of course next thing i'm sending her a text saying oh well thanks for that i I don't i don't mind at all and we get on really well yeah i don't mind at all but but thanks for that but of course it does mean that your son is now going to have to win wimbledon going to have to on the 7th of july because it's going to be my last match
0: um
1: so there was this i talked about the interminable build-up build-up of the actual day but i mean imagine what that was like counting down from march knowing that that was that was going to be it um so it wasn't just incredible just incredible that that, the my the last point i should describe as as bbc tennis correspondent should be a match point converted by andy murray who i i got to know reasonably well and had followed you know followed his career from the absolute word go dan and and that's the thing you know, you don't, you don't want to get too close to these people. And as it's, yeah. you know, it's actually a regret of mine that I never got to know Andy more during those yeah. those 10 years. But I think as a journalist, you have to have that detachment um, yeah. so that when things go wrong or when mistakes are made, you feel that you can call it as it is. And, and there were times yeah. when when I had to do that. But yeah. I, I remember first meeting him when he was 16, And I remember him vividly, him coming to the sports personality of the year in 2004, it would have been, when he won the the US Open Juniors and he won the the young sports person. And it was kind of almost my job to sort of look after him that night. And I remember him telling me he'd locked himself in the toilet of his hotel um, a a few hours earlier. And uh, a mate of his who was with him at the time from from Sanchez-Casal had travelled with him and thankfully got him out otherwise he'd never have been there in the first place but I, yeah. I remember him bending the ear of Sir Clive Woodward that night, uh, the World nice. Cup winning okay. rugby coach yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, you couldn't prize him away from, yeah, from, yeah. from Woodward because he was so interested, it comes back to what I was saying earlier about just learning and soaking up yeah. information and that's what I remember from a very young Andy Murray and then of course the following year he had his big breakthrough at Wimbledon and his amazing yeah. hard court summer and uh, his debut at the US Open and the the rest was history so so i'd sort of known murray for a long time yeah yeah and it was such a big thing i knew what a big thing it was for him and his family yes it was a big thing for me and for britain but we didn't really matter this was yeah. about him it was about his family and it was about the moment for british sport and yeah. it was just an amazing thing to be right at the heart of
0: and you guys will always be tied and connected to that historic moment what I would love Jonathan describe that final game
1: yes um I mean where where do we start I mean I suppose we start with the sit down because the final game followed a sit down and of course Murray is then coming out to serve for the Wimbledon title and I just I just remember the noise at that changeover and like I said earlier just letting the crowd speak for itself I think I I actually said that let's let center court speak for itself and we just let the sound go on for 30 40 seconds to the point where the producer actually said in my earphones right pick up now pick up now that's that's quite enough of that but i i I let it go for another 10 seconds because the crowd was so great but then if you remember dan he started that game like it was the first game of the match it was unbelievable it was like he he was at match point before you knew it but then the match started then the match started at, at 40 Love Murray. Yep. And I, you know, I, said this, I said this weird thing afterwards, which is that, and, you know, you think about it a lot and you think, well, oh, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. But there's, there's a large part of it that I believe to be true, which is that Murray never came closer to defeat in that match, in that Wimbledon final, as when he had match point. Because yeah. think about it for a second. When, when Djokovic was, when it was advantage Djokovic, the, the pressure the pressure was off. Murray could, could, and he did, he played some amazing tennis on those break points for Djokovic. Yeah. The yeah. juice points were juice points. He had good serves from the juice court, And again, it was kind of that, that juice, oh, pressure slightly off because nothing can massively happen here. Whatever happens on this juice point. But on match points, Murray. That's when his arm was shaking. That's when his yeah. service arm was shaking. That's when everybody was thinking the same thing as he was, which realistically was, you've you've got to win it here. You have yeah. to win it here, otherwise you're in trouble. And I think he's again, he's admitted as much since. If he'd have lost that game and it had gone five all, um pff, would he have won it? Knowing what we know about Djokovic, would Djokovic yeah. probably have won that set? Probably, I would say. Djokovic yeah. would have then been the fav- favourite, don't you think, if he'd leveled it for five all? Would Absolutely. would Murray have then been able to recover and win that match in four or five sets? Oh, yeah, you'd love to think so. And of course, he did at the US Open. You know, the, the same yeah. sort of thing happened. Djokovic got back to two all and Murray won the fifth set. So it might have happened. But to this day I, I I don't know how he did it. I do not yeah. know how he hauled that, that shaking body and that frazzled mind over the finishing line to win that game, let alone yeah. that match. And the back yeah. and forth, the juice points, the advantage Djokovic, the juice points, the match point Murray, the back to juice, the advantage Djokovic, the juice, the advantage Djokovic. Yeah, it was just ridiculous. I mean, I was sitting next to Richard Krychuk and John Lloyd, and we just didn't know what to do with ourselves. You know, every point would finish, and there would be pens flying around the commentary box, and I'd be slamming the desk, and I'd be... I mean, you need to see my my notepad, Dan, from that day, because the doodles are ridiculous. Some psychologists could have an absolute field day with it. And it's getting more and more crazy, my scoring of that final game. And when I look back on it now, it just backs up what, what I've always said, which is that he had to win it in that game. And, of yeah. course, ultimately, he did. And I've still, to this day, got no idea how.
0: Very well described. And, and I think we all know where we were. I think it, in, in the tennis world, to be two sets to love up and 5-4 up, never has there been a match that that moment has been so pivotal.
1: Yeah, you know, be, yeah.
0: because actually, in terms of the scoring system, two sets to love, five four, you you are big, big, big favorite to win that tennis match. Course, but yeah. I, I completely agree with you. On that day, it felt different. It felt it felt like it was already in the fifth set, and, yes. and it was it was what an incredible moment.
1: The beauty of the scoring system, isn't it? You know, that two sets to love and five four. That, I mean, that is the equivalent of a football team being four nil up with with yeah. two minutes to play. um but of course uh, it's ridiculous isn't it when you're talking these times Uh, two sets to love five four up serving for the match i think it was a 50 50 match i genuinely think it was in that in that last game it was a 50 50 match even though murray was so far ahead on the scoreboard and that that's what makes that i mean you could replay that final game as as a match in isolation i think 20 minutes or so and just one of the best things I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's also why whatever they touch with tennis, they
0: can't touch the five set grand slams.
1: No, no. And I, 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 I tend to agree with you on that. I mean, obviously coming from the media side of things, you, you do accept the, the challenge of broadcasters to, to fit long matches into schedules. And I, you know, I feel the same about the the deciding tie break really in a way yeah um, it's a hard one, isn't it, because you want exposure, you want to get the product to as many people as possible, and if that means shorter format, great, but then, as you say, nothing can replace the drama of a five set tennis match no. um so so yeah, long, long may it live
0: and and Jonathan not to not to just skirt over 2013 to 2020, because I know you've still been obviously heavily involved, BBC Five Live, still heavily involved in, in, in other sports. But in January of 2020, you, you moved away from, from the BBC. Was, was that your choice at that time?
1: It was actually it was actually more recently than that. Um, it was, was it? Uh, it, yeah, it was actually July that I left the BBC staff. Yeah, no, I'm, oh, I'm now a, yeah. a fully fledged freelance. So um, very excited to be popping up on ITV's coverage of the French Open um, in September, which I'm Great. very excited about. Um, joining uh, joining the brilliant team that they have there, which of course would be something I wouldn't have had the chance to do while I was on the BBC staff. So yep. yeah, I'm sort of like voice for hire now. So so call me, <laughs> so, which is a complete change for me because I've been a, a BBC staff member since that day when I got a job uh, in in uh, 1994. So very much 25 years. Only ever working for the. I mean, literally never worked for anybody else. So yeah. it's it's nice to now have that little bit of freedom. Hopefully, still work for the BBC in the future, but on a on a freelance yeah. basis. But okay. have that opportunity now to to work for other people. And I'm really hoping that a lot of that work will be back in tennis, because obviously okay. that is what a lot of people know me for, and something that hopefully you can you can tell from this conversation. I'm deeply passionate about. Um, and as I say, joining joining ITV Sport for the French Open is an absolute thrill, and I uh, can't thank them enough for, for for giving me the call. And um, we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing how that tournament uh, transpires, Ooh. because it's going to be really fascinating, I think, to see what sort of um, what sort of tournament plays out.
0: And will you be doing that from Paris or from home?
1: um i'm not actually sure if that no it definitely won't be from home <laughs> oh, yeah, <all> from <laughs> my, my the studio setup yeah. is okay for a podcast but i'm not sure yeah. if it's okay for terrestrial t- tv yeah. um yeah. yeah we we wait we wait to hear on that we'll be we'll be led by the uh by the itv editors on that and i'm sure safety uh safety first and all that but it will be the usual uh, comprehensive coverage on itv4 yeah. and, uh, and, and their other channels as well
0: because I have, and again, then I'd, I'd love you to talk about this in a minute as well, sport and feels. You know, you've the, the podcast that you've you've brought out with, with Marv Pugash and, and, a, and a couple of other guys and girls, which I've listened to and it is absolutely fantastic. Anybody listening that hasn't listened to it, get it, get it on your subscription because they are fantastic podcasts. And one of the things you were talking about on an episode I was listening to the other day was that. Obviously, during this global pandemic, uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about commentating. I think it was Ian Dark. Yeah. And he was, co- and he was talking about commentating on German football <laughs> from his bedroom.
1: Yes. And, yes.
0: And, 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 and it brought the discussion around the importance of being in situation and the, the ability to, to really bring commentary alive.
1: Yeah, really, really important. I I think he said, because he does a lot of sort of uh, other leagues for for BT Sport, does he? And um, I think he said that one moment he was looking at his screen and the ball was in the centre circle, then there was like some freeze or something like that or fuzzy connection and he looks at, and next thing you know the ball's in the arms of the goalkeeper so i mean you're right i mean if you're just doing it off the telly and there's a technical problem what are you meant to do as a commentator if that ball had not ended up in the arms of the goalkeeper and it ended up in the back of the net ian suddenly is in a completely invidious situation not knowing what to say or do and, and what would he be expected to say or do um, but but if but if you're there, of course, it's a, a completely different matter. And I, I think I think more than the technical side of things, it's about it's about riding that wave. It's about feeling what yeah. the guy or the girl sitting next to you in the stand, what they're feeling. And yeah, that that really is so, so important. But it's it's commentators like and Dark that I've that I've looked up to over the years. We had Barry Davis on the series as well, as well as um, loads of uh, medal-winning Olympians. And we're actually doing a second series during the Paralympic Games, which I'm really looking forward to as well, because too often with the Paralympics, you know, we talk about disability sport uh, like a minority sport in some ways. Um, How how is tennis, not wheelchair tennis, how is tennis, football, track and field, cycling, swimming, how are these minority sports? They're not... and the fact that the athletes the high level elite athletes taking part in these mainstream sports have a disability i mean why should that matter Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a huge advocate of disability sport and the Paralympic movement. So when people were asking us, oh, you, you're not going to do this during the Paralympics, are you? So, so what's that all about? I was very happy to say, absolutely, we're going to be doing this during the Paralympics yeah. and we'll see you then. So, yeah, sport yeah. and the feels series two. Um, make sure you subscribe and you can get the whole of the Olympic series as well uh, while you're there, because that's uh, still available for download.
0: And what was the motivation for, for, the, for that podcast?
1: I think uh, a couple of reasons. One, to bring together, as you say, this sort of group of now I'm a a freelance, now I'm in the freelance world, I can do what I like. So I know a lot of friends and colleagues who are also in that situation. Of course, the the lockdown happened and a lot of people who have been freelance for a while were really struggling they hadn't had a day's work since since march you get this kind of pay as you go in the in the broadcast yeah. freelance community so i thought well wouldn't it be nice for everyone to get together to sort of have the same platform to be able to do the sort of thing we want to do which is sort of intelligent long-form conversation on the same platform so that was really the motivation behind it but the more we did it and the more interviews we did the more we wanted to do because the stories were so great and we're so grateful yeah. to all the contributors who gave up their time uh, to come on. And, uh, you know, it, it's the same in the Paralympic series where we're telling stories that might not necessarily get that amount of time to get deep into um, in other formats. So it's really nice to have the, the independence and also the platform to be able to put that content out there who knows where it may may lead we're, we're building it as, we're building it as a sort of a wider movement in sports broadcasting yeah. i don't know what that really means other than it's something we really believe in we're, we're passionate yeah. about sports audio content and it being accessible to young and old but being something that you can really immerse yourself in and and learn from, because that's the thing, Dan, you know, the, uh, as with your series, there's there's something in every interview yeah. you do that Absolutely. somebody listening can take away from it and can can either help in their life or in their business or in their sport or whatever it might be. And uh, and that's what we're really hoping happens with uh, with Sport in the Fields. Yeah.
0: You guys are doing a great job. It's, uh, I'm making my way through the first series, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yes, all, a lot so, to wade
1: through, so. isn't it? <laughs> no, I thought. Not, well, wouldn't it's... it be a good idea to sort of do one episode for every day of scheduled competition of the Olympic Games? And then we looked at the schedule and thought, "Oh, that's sixteen, sort of one <laughs> yeah. after the other." So, uh, yeah. sort of, yeah, it, was, it was quite a, a hardcore process. But of course, that's the beauty of podcasts, isn't yeah. it? Like with it, like with this is. series, you can listen to it just whenever you want at yep. your leisure so yep. uh, yeah hopefully people will yep. continue to revisit it all the way up to the rescheduled tokyo games
0: oh well fantastic and and it's tradition on our, on our podcast jonathan we have a we have a quick fire round to finish yep. off the podcasts so nothing too tricky mm-hmm. um but are you what ready you for me your favorite grand slam
1: Oh now you see that's a that's a killer isn't it first up first up he throws the googly and of course my lo- my logical answer now would be a 42nd answer where I have to extol the virtues of all of them because they've all as you know they they've all got their own individuality so I'm going to have to say I'm going to say the first one I went to as correspondent because it blew me away when I went to the Australian Open for the first time and um i just loved it loved the whole feel the uh, sorry this isn't very quick fire is it um (laughs) i love the proximity to the city center and the Yarra river and the fact that the city would migrate out to the tennis you know for the sundown session just just loved it and um, i really hope to return one day
0: when you have a voice like yours, Jonathan, and a way of describing things like you do, we will forgive you for not being as quick as some of the others. So, okay. so that's all right. <laughs> radio or TV, and why?
1: Well, for me, it's the first love, so it has to be radio. Um, for the for the pictures, it can paint in the mind. For the connection, the one-on-one connection between the voice that comes out of those speakers and the person on the other end wherever they may be in a hot air balloon maybe or in their bedroom or in their car you know that connection is like nothing else in the world let alone in the media so radio will always be my first love
0: a tennis specific question do you believe there should be injury timeouts or not
1: now you see this is a debate that i've always felt slightly uncomfortable with never having played the game at an elite level. Okay. And yeah. It's Because what happens is, is you view the injury timeout from the perspective of the spectator. And, of course, it's frustrating. And you see someone leaving a court, and then maybe you see someone leaving the court again, and then you see the trainer coming on, and then you see the trainer coming on again, and you can't help but get frustrated and just go, just yeah. get on with it. Yeah. But then, if you haven't been in that situation, and who who was that player who, who who banged his head, had that really bad injury at the U.S. Open way back? Was it was it? Was the it Hewesley? Uh, well, he, he bashed himself well, in usually. the head, of course, didn't <laughs> yeah, he? Did, <laughs> with yeah. his racket, famously. Was that in Miami yeah. once. That was that was a brilliant. Yeah, that brilliant was, moment. Yeah. But look, I mean, no, I mean the point. The point being, there can yeah. there could be a really yeah. really serious uh, injury or accident that requires urgent medical attention and I think and there could be an underlying health issue as well that requires yes. maybe not quite so urgent medical attention but still needs medical attention and if you scrap yeah. the injury time out altogether well what, what then happens how do you then yeah. how do you then create this sort of like line in the sand where you say well actually if they're if it's really if it's really bad then of course they can come on so yeah. I think I think there has to be some sort of system in place. You just have to hope that players don't abuse it, and I yeah. think I think the majority of players don't abuse it. I'd like to think they don't abuse it, um, yeah. but obviously there have been high-profile cases of that that not being the case.
0: ATP or Davis Cup
1: hmm uh the davis i've had so many conversations with davis cup people and itf people over the years with with my ideas for for different formats because for me the davis cup has to live it's it's an amazing it, it comes back to that history thing and, and you don't want to keep going on about history but it, it does mean something you know does, when you've got such a huge role of honor so such a huge archive of amazing matches and amazing finals and you've got the whole international element of tennis which i would always point to you know that the home and away thing means that if you're playing in madagascar or uzbekistan that federation has the opportunity to then earn money from home davis cup ties and that is so so important again you can tell i just tend to go off on these ridiculous tangents because that's not what you asked me you asked me about the finals but and jonathan kids, just quickly though yeah. on, on that point yeah
0: earn, earn money for these countries but also inspire another generation in those countries yeah. as well
1: yeah absolutely because, give, give kids the chance well, to go know, and watch tennis which they might never have yeah
0: and, be, and build a legacy around that and i think that would be one of my things as well that we're now missing plonking it in madrid where okay some spanish people get to watch that every year is is very different to inspiring the next generation of tennis mm. players which a davis cup and fed cup ties have the capability of doing so i think your yeah. points are very valid
1: um but i i don't know is, is the honest answer i don't know what to do to to best solve that that riddle because uh, on the other hand Dan you know when I go back to those conversations that I had I probably found myself advocating the one venue final situation okay. 10 15 years ago because I think I think it has potential in it and it can work it, it's about getting the balance right isn't it and yeah. you know the ITf do great work in developing the game around the world and that for them is as important as yeah presenting that last 16 uh finals if you like to 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 the world So it's, it's just how do we get the balance right in terms of the atp i think they clearly did a great job um it was exciting it got crowds it got good media coverage um should it be where it is in the calendar well where do we start with the tennis calendar that's never going to sort itself out properly so I'm just going to have to pass on that one, I'm afraid, and say, <laughs> I don't work in tennis anymore. Not my problem, mate.
0: <laughs> yet, yet. Uh, and last one, last one, one rule change that you would have in tennis.
1: The, the, the aborted ball toss. Ridiculous um actually i've got i've got well i've got a few aborted ball toss <laughs> ridiculous don't care if the wind's blowing sorry that's just that's just part of it the variables uh, of sport are what help make sport it doesn't help your ego as a professional player or as a coach when the ball when the wind takes it away from you but i would say sorry tough luck on with the second hat, serve second that
0: serve. rafter wouldn't be happy with that
1: no, well, loads of people wouldn't be happy with that. <laughs> yeah, and then, that... But, but no, I mean, that that's slightly that's slightly tongue in cheek. For me, more, and and this has been a campaign of mine for years, scrap the knock up. Again, it's yep. an ego thing. It's an ego thing. You wanna just have that sort of pitter patter around. Then you wanna go onto the volleys. Then you want to do the overheads. Then you want to do your serving. You've done all that. You've done all that on the practice course. Why do you have to bore us for 10 minutes doing that again? On centre court, sorry, it's completely not required. And, you know, I suppose the counter-argument would be... Because you'll you, you know, Dan, you've done... You're in the physical condition, aren't you? You've, you've done the warm-up yeah. as such to get ready for the match. So that is done. That's covered. It's just getting a feel, isn't it? It's getting a feel for the yeah. balls off the strings. But my counter-argument would be, again, ego thing. I don't care if the first couple of games are scrappy. I don't care yeah. if it takes you 10 minutes to get the feel for the ball off the strings to get, to get into the environment, in a way, that helps the contest. It helps yeah. get people into the match because you're wondering, right, who's going to settle first here? It's going to make the decision on the coin toss that bit more important. Are you going to serve or are you going to receive? How are you feeling about life, not having had the knock-up? So I think it would add a little bit of extra jeopardy. Yeah, it would be bruising to the ego of, uh, of the players, but I don't, I don't really care. Come out, start, game on, play. That's what I'd do.
0: I'm I'm with you. you, You're probably, I've asked that question to 50-odd guests, and I reckon you're the 10th person that said the same on Mm. that one.
1: I just don't understand why it isn't done. I don't understand why it isn't done. and I, I suppose it comes back to this sort of idea of tennis having so many governing bodies and so many so many different different people sort of in charge of different elements of it there isn't sort of one overlord who can say right this is what we're going to do next week
0: yeah but
1: i I kind of it would be a brave thing it would be a really brave thing to do but i think it would it would help and i think it would be good for the game
0: you you never get a hundred percent of people that embrace change at first you know so you know something like that i'm sure would cause different conflict in different areas but Six months down the line, it'll just would just become a normal part of the game, and people might have to adapt. I know a lot of players like to warm up and then spend forty-five minutes doing what they do to prepare to then have the five minutes. I guess the only counter argument to it a little bit, Jonathan, would be if I go down the levels, is there is there tennis courts available? For players to have a warm-up close to the match, and, yeah. and I guess the the, the the difficulty on that slightly is how long is a tennis match? <laughs> how long is the match before you? You know, if you if you know you're playing a football match at 3 o'clock, you're playing a football match at 3 o'clock. If you're teeing off at 9.44, you're teeing off at 9.44. If the boxing fight starts at 7.30 at night, it starts at 7.30 at night. A tennis match can have a variation of often two to three hours of when it starts. So preparation for, for a tennis player, tennis coaches around the match, When it comes to what to eat, when to warm up, all of these things, the variables do make that a little bit trickier. So there would have to be a court by by the court that is readily available for people to warm up so that they can then go straight on the court. I think those would just be some of the logistical issues, probably the further down the level that they go.
1: And all very, very fair points. And I I take them on board, Daniel. Very good.
0: (laughs) Jonathan Overend. It is a, it's a massive privilege and honour to have you on the podcast, genuinely. And I, I said it earlier in the podcast, one of my career highlights as a tennis player, tennis coach, was that I had the opportunity to sit in the commentary box with you. It's something that I certainly cherished. I, I think you are the absolute top of your game in what you do. And, and I, I am over the moon to hear that you're going to be coming back into tennis in September.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure coming on. Good luck with the rest of the series.
0: Thanks a lot, Jonathan. So come on then, who, who's ready for tennis to start again after listening to that? Um, hearing Jonathan's voice, I loved it when he, he started describing the nadal federer point. You know, I really felt I was in the moment with him then. And uh, we've got, yeah, US Open coming to our screens very soon. Obviously, Cincinnati first. Uh, good luck to all the, the, the men and women in those events. The coaches, the officials, the commentators, you know, all of these. There's it, It's a big operation. The Grand Slam level tour and also the ATP and WTA. There's many people that are spending... Many weeks dedicated to, to bringing that to life for us and many, many weeks away from their families. So good luck to you all. And we'll look forward to getting a few of you on the pod over the next few weeks. And it just goes without saying what a what a legend, uh, Jonathan Overend. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And, and again, to all of you that continue to listen, subscribe, get involved with the podcast, much appreciated. If you enjoyed this one, as well as enjoying others, please do pass it on. Please do review us, uh, rate us, all of those type of things. It it is much appreciated. And yeah, you've got 52 podcasts to make your way through. Um, Send us a little message if you've managed to make your way through them all and uh, we'll get it on social media because that level of support is fantastic. Uh, Yeah, big love from Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan, my my co-host John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.